Andrew Jones, welcome. Why are loudspeakers generally inside wooden boxes? Um, the an- the non technical answer is cost. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, there's a number of aspects that mm. clearly in the old days the the only practical way of enclosing the rear of a loudspeaker driver they have to be enclosed in some way except for open baffle type speakers which is a whole different yes uh, issue um so if you're going to enclose the rear what materials are available well wood and because they're going in homes it kind of looks like furniture so that's the the real background reason wood is readily available low cost easy to manufacture and particularly mm. when you're talking about affordable speakers, you know, MDF, vinyl covered, and you just do V-grooving and fold it and there's your cabinet. It allows you to do a very low cost uh, or cost effective cabinet. As you go away from wood or wood substitutes, everything else costs you a lot more money. And uh, yeah, whether it's composite materials, sandwich construction, metal enclosures, they all cost so much more. And right. you've got to balance that cost against what you're going to put in for the cost of the drivers and the crossover and all the other peripheral things. Mm. So, um, Okay, so when you're designing a speaker, do you prioritise a certain aspect with, I mean, with a, with a budget, do you say, well, okay, most of this budget has to go to drivers or do you have to set it aside for the cabinet or the crossover? I mean, how does that generally play out? I've, I've very often said my order priority is drivers crossover cabinet. Mm. Obviously that's with low cost um, systems. Mm. Um, I find the best bang for the book is start with, Good drivers, you know, because it's it's like is the source more important uh, or is the speaker most important? Um, with the drivers, no matter how good the cabinet is, uh, how inert, if you put mm. bad drivers in, you're not going to get good sound. Mm. Um, and so, if you go the other way, get good drivers, integrate them properly, as seamlessly as possible because you've got issues of both on and off axis response to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the cabinet is kind of the next thing, as I say, for low cost speakers. And right. I find that the, the problems that cabinets introduce to the sound, uh, yes, they're audible, but they're not the most audible out of those three. So okay. uh, I, do what, I do what I can with the cabinet in low-cost systems, but I'll accept that if people call in or write in or talk to me and say, yeah, that cabinet's not so good, I'll go, yeah, you're right. <laughs> because you're building to a budget, right? Yes, yes. And I guess with the debut series for ELAC and probably to a less extent the um, Unify, the budget is still pretty tight, isn't it? Yeah, with Unify, it's let's say an average of double the price point of the bookshelves for debut. Mm. So, you know, that actually doesn't give me much extra dollars to spend when you look at parts cost versus sell- selling price. I'm not take- 
saying manufacturing cost um, or any of those or dealer cost. I'm talking about parts cost. It's quite high ratio. So I get an extra maybe $20 per pair, $25 to $30 per pair to spend. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do with that? And so with Unify, it was, again, could I possibly do a concentric driver at that price point? And because I always like to do three-way concentric drivers, not only have I got the added expense of a concentric driver and development costs and tooling Mm. and all that stuff, I have to have a three-way. And the network is obviously quite a bit more complex you know, in a two-way system, you've got low-pass filter and a high-pass filter. Mm-hmm. Here, you've got a low-pass filter and a high-pass filter and a low-pass filter and a high-pass filter. And the low-pass filter and the high-pass f- filter between the woofer and the mid-range, because of the frequency range you're operating at and the um, component values, those parts are incredibly more costly than what you're putting in for between the mid-range and the tweeter. And uh, in fact, on that Unify, inside the cabinet, if you try and find the crossover, it's a board that is basically takes up the whole bottom panel area of the cabinet. Mm. So um, they weren't very pleased when I told them that the crossover <laughs> I wanted in there. <laughs> this is supposed to be a budget system. Well, uh... <laughs> is that where active crossovers tend to come into their own when it comes to a, a three-way as opposed to a two-way or is um, is that not the case? Potentially yes. Um, I could have almost afforded a, an active system for the cost of that crossover. Not quite mm. but you, know, you kind of get the point. Um, and the problem when you do a three-way is that the bandwidths of the networks uh, or the crossover points are relatively close to each other let's say 250 hertz and uh, two and a half k and what tends to happen you you get a nice blend between the mid-range and the tweeter and then think oh sorry i'm supposed to be putting a filter on the low end of the mid-range as soon as you add in that filter there's enough phase effects um up at two and a half k that the two and a half k no longer adds properly together so you adjust that, and then you go, oh, my base to mid-range now no longer adds up correctly. So it's quite complex balancing all of those until you get uh, the right uh, blend, again, both on-axis and off-axis, mm-hmm. and with acceptable impedance levels. It's something I keep banging on about recently, about impedance of speakers. But mm-hmm. um, the more complex the network the greater the possibility of compromising the impedance. Is it the case with more complex crossovers, the more likely you are to incur a an, an unfavourable impedance swing? Yes, that's certainly the case. And you know, the more complexity you add, um, what happens is, Often you're trying... See, the the network is not just a crossover. It's an equaliser crossover. Mm -hmm. No drive unit is flat, certainly not in a cabinet versus um, an infinite baffle, you know, how you might measure under when you're designing drivers. 
So mm-hmm. you've got to equalize the driver uh, in that cabinet um, so that you get an overall flat response. Sometimes that's not so easy. And since you want to maintain sensitivity, of course, if you say, you know, I'm going to accept an, let's say, 75 dB sensitivity, you could do almost anything to get it flat and you wouldn't right. have a problem. But when you're trying to push sensitivity, the likelihood is you're going to have a crossover network that might want to peak a little before it drops off. And that peak always then reduces the impedance of that frequency. Hmm. You can maybe add more components to get around that issue, but then you've got more cost of the network and it is already higher because it's a three-way. So it's just a very fine balancing act. And so uh, since I'm adamant about maintaining a reasonable impedance, um, then Hmm. yeah, it's a fight every time. So is that, so is that really is that easier with active crossovers or well, is it just yes certainly you you'll still have to make sure that um both your base to mid range add together okay mm. and mid range to tweeter of course but there's nothing impedance doesn't matter you could use any frequency response shape that you wanted to fix all those factors and it has no effect on impedance now if you end up having to boost by more than a dB or so to overcome limitations of the drivers, then you're Mm. going to run into headroom issues because what it means is the way they add up is not benign. So if it boosts, it means you've kind of either not got the right driver or you're trying to overcome losses through the crossover region by boosting an individual driver that might come back to bite you off axis um, because it was only wrong on axis and now you've got too much power off axis those kind of issues but overall it's much much easier to design an active crossover than a passive there's no interaction with the driver impedance itself Mm. Um, the the amplifier sees a much more benign impedance to drive than with a single amplifier driving through a complex network Mm -hmm. Um, it's operating over each amplifier is operating over limited bandwidth so it's not having to do high frequencies as well as low frequencies Um, spectral characteristics of music change with frequency band so you can incorporate that into the requirements that you need from the amplifier to drive that particular frequency range. Lots of things. And then when you obviously when you go to from analog active crossovers to DSP crossovers, mm. freedom to do things is almost unlimited uh, in, in a design environment. Um, you can put in as many EQ sections as well as the basic filtering as you like. It's only processing power. It's not lots of analog active stages in series that can add noise, distortion, whatever. Mm. Um, and you know, we, we've argued, I, I've said in the past as to why I might hope to not need to put that much EQ in to fix things. But nonetheless, should you desire, you can do almost anything. with. Because you told me last year in Munich, I think that, you really do, I guess that echoes what you've said earlier on in this conversation, is that you like to work with the best drivers you can afford before you apply any crossover because it means that 
the work that the, the heavy lifting is almost done for you in advance and you don't have to do too much that's right. crossover and you know i'm not unique in that viewpoint i think anyone who's developing drivers is trying to develop the best they can but mm. still with a affordable system you still got to decide on your priorities and so do you say oh i'll accept this driver that's maybe not as good as i'd really like but i can't afford the one i'd really like because i want to mm. put more money into crossover and i want to put more min- money into the box so you might make somewhat different choices uh, depending on who you are and what mm. you feel and what you're sensitive to you know lots of people uh Everybody hears different things in music and wants different things from music, from the replay, let's say. And some people, all they care about is vocal, you know, mid-range purity. And Mm -hmm. frequency extremes, they don't really care about. Other people uh, have ideas, oh, I want more extended bass. Again, I'm not so concerned about the tweeter, so I'll design the speaker to have better bass response. These decisions impact what your choices are going to be in all the way from developing the drivers to the crossover to the box. And um, then in terms of box coloration, you, you might be particularly sensitive to the box going ding on certain notes of the music. Your piano is a good example of that. And every, you know, every time that happens, you kind of head jerks back and you go, Oh, can't accept that. What you've just said about people having different listening priorities does that mean that, does that make a bit of a mockery of people say, well, what's best, Andrew? Which is the best speaker for me in the ELAC range because of the fact that you don't know what their priorities are, you know, just, just for meeting them. You have to sort of ask them a few questions, really, well, first of all. Yeah, certainly if they're asking advice, not having listened to the speakers yet, that's the most difficult of all because... I don't know the person. I don't like know the kind of music well, they like to listen to. I don't know what they expect that music or how it presents itself to them. I don't know their ancillary equipment. I don't know how their room sounds. All those factors affect what you would recommend. Um, mm. And you know, it, this world is getting more and more difficult with... You know, retail stores are going away and right. there's a, a few good dealers left out there and they're still struggling uh, the mm. opportunity to listen to us uh, not just a speaker but any piece of hi-fi gear before you purchase it's very difficult and even if you get into large retailers um it can still be very far away from a lot of listeners and not so easy just to do what you used to do of playing with putting a system together till you get what you like. Mm. So you're relying on trying to second guess what someone likes. And that is very difficult. It, It takes a long time in a store to get to know a customer to start to put together a system that you think they're going to like, but at least mm. we can tell you immediately the result of what you thought they might like. Mm. Um, but over the phone, that's not possible. And so we're left with, well, do I take a chance on buying it and then returning it if I don't like it? 
Um, it's difficult. I, I've been around enough systems to hear the considerable variance um, in sound. And I'm not talking subtleties. Mm. I'm talking glaring differences to know that um, people's tastes can be very, very different. And I guess I'm lucky that the taste I have that I try and incorporate into my speakers has been popular enough that I've got a business. (laughs) Um, Right. Uh, certainly for affordable speakers where you're selling them by the tens of thousands, you, you need to have a a sound that is pleasing to an awful lot of people. That brings me to a, a very, um, I think, a very interesting concept, the concept of neutrality that people seem to appear to thirst for. But I, I kind of despair a little bit because I wonder how they know. I mean, how can you possibly know? if a speaker is neutral or not. So I guess I would ask you as an expert, do you you aim to design your speaker as a neutral speaker or is it just some idea or a feeling of neutrality that you you, you shoot for? So I would like to think, especially with my upbringing with uh, being at KEF and around people like Peter Walker of Quad and and all these luminaries, that Mm. I'd like to think I'm designing something to get to the closest approach to the original sound, you know, that old chestnut. Mm. And you look at the work of Floyd Toole and what he finds as listener preferences in all his studies, which imply that most listeners prefer, let's say, a neutral response. The question then becomes, what is a neutral response? And neutral to what? Right? So... You could say that, um, well, people never get to hear the original performance, whether that's uh, acoustic instruments in an acoustic space Mm. or something created in a studio. And studios don't record in a, typically for accuracy, they record to create an experience. Yes, that music. You don't know what those choices were. So maybe what you should say is, um, if I want accuracy and I'm not listening to only acoustic music, then I should be using the monitors and the replay equipment that that studio used. Okay? Right. Right? Mm -hmm. So as long as you know what the producer was listening over, and how we prioritize between the sound he was getting from the monitors in the monitoring room versus taking it home and listening to it, putting it in his car, playing it over a boom box. You know, how did he choose the sound? Because mm. you want it to be commercial. You know, all this business about loudness wars, you want it to pop when it's on the radio. Mm-hmm. So what even were his final choices, uh, having listened to it and had it mixed and mastered, over a variety of listening devices. So in that case, which is the correct listening device to aim for for what he was trying to produce? Um, Once you move away from that, then you don't know what it ought to sound like. And 
You can do things like David Wilson did with Peter McGrath. Go out and make recordings of your own. Right. And balance mm. your speakers so that to you, it sounded as close as you thought, and I say it, you thought it did when you were at the original event. Mm. Um, because when you're using it to play back, you're no longer at the original event. So you're relying yes. on memory. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to deny that uh, if you're experienced enough, you actually do have a good oral memory. Um, but uh, you're still relying on that. And if you've done it often enough, maybe that's okay. But what about all the other music? Is is what you've designed to represent how you recorded that original event? And it's chicken and egg. Well, how do you know it's close to the original event? Because I listen over my speakers. But how do you know your speakers are accurate enough to show that you recorded it the correct way? <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, I was giving mm. a talk in Montreal, and everything was this um, chicken and egg and going round in circles. Every discussion, whether it's about how you calibrate microphones, you know, how do you know what the microphone is in the first place? How do you know what the speaker should be? How do you know what the music was? They all turn into circular arguments. So um, how it's an important question. How do you know when you got it right? And mm. it's a very complex issue. And I always go back to saying, okay, let's just take an example of closest approach to the original sound. So let's set up an original sound. Let's take some, some simple instruments, acoustic instruments in an acoustic space. Um, which microphones are you going to use? Are you going to use care laboratory measuring microphones, which are omni-microphones? Well, they're not really quiet enough, the small ones, for maybe recording music. But you might you might just get away with it, but you'll always hear a bit of noise in the background. Okay. How many of them are going to use? Am I going to kind of do a cross pair? Well, you can't with omni-microphones. So I'm going to do spaced pairs. So now I've got the phase issues between the two microphones. Do I use the, is it ORTF, the French one of three spaced microphones? Um, the cross pair can't be omni-mics, so they're not mm. laboratory microphones. They have to be um, cardioid or um, figure of eight. They might have exactly the same response at all angles, but probably not. Um, then should it be a ribbon microphone? Should it be a condenser microphone? Is that a large diaphragm condenser microphone or a small diaphragm? <laughs> um, if you measure microphones, you'll find big variances in the response mm. the microphone. And those variances typically are used to flavor what you're recording. Right. Every engineer has a favorite set of microphones, and there's um, almost fights between the condenser guys versus the ribbon guys. Um, but there's, mm. oh, this is my favorite microphone for hi-hat. Oh, this is my one for kick drum. This is my one for female vocal. This is my Frank Sinatra microphone, so I can get everyone sounding like Frank did. So... Um, and then where do you place them? Mm. And how many of them do you place? So it go, you know, the further you delve into that, 
the more mm-hmm. you see that capturing that original event is fraught with problems. You can get a flavour of it and maybe some degree of tonality um, closeness, maybe. Mm. But um, the ear... W- w- Let's say we go back to the pure method of coincident pair uh, figure eights. Mm-hmm. Um, if you put them where you were listening, it's going to sound way too reverberant because mm-hmm. sound captured over two channels and played back over two microphone, uh, two uh, loudspeakers that are thirty degrees angle um, mm-hmm. off of central. The ear will perceive a different tonality. Especially if you do a phantom center, you know, so your, mm-hmm. your voice comes dead center, but it's not a voice coming from the center. It's a voice coming from equally from left and right. And yes. the, the head related transfer function for sound coming straight at you is different from coming to the side. So if you were to record a female vocalist and play it through a, a single speaker placed dead center, and then move it around, the tonality would change. Mm-hmm. So how can a coincident pair at one point in space represent the tonality of a left and right speaker? It's all an illusion, and the brain processes all the sounds differently. At the real event, you've got sounds coming from all the way around you. So all of that reverberation, which if you sat fairly back in a regular concert hall, you're very much in the reverberant field rather than the direct field. You process mm-hmm. that differently, and you're watching what's happening, and you you know the soloists performing, so you kind of latch on to that, um, partly because of visual clues, not just audible clues. Mm-hmm. When you play it back, that reverberation is from two channels at the front doesn't present itself to your ears in the same way. So the brain can't process the reverberation as a separate event coming at you. And so it mixes it all in together and it sounds too reverberant. So you're moving the microphones closer. But where do you put it? Do you put it at seat level for a full orchestra? Well, that's going to mean the instruments at the back are fighting their way through to the front mm-hmm. when they recorded. So you raise it up. And it also means the the because the orchestra depth is so great, the instruments at the front sound much much louder than the ones at the back, whereas they don't when you're out in the reverberant field. So now you raise the microphone up, and point it down over the orchestra. Well, now the sound of the strings, for example, is very different above than it is in the forward direction. So strings sound zingy. Um, all these questions keep arising and um, it's difficult to say that there actually is an answer to it. Um, I mean, it sounds, it sounds to me like, I don't want to put words in your mouth here and I may have, we may have touched on, on this last year in Denver, but the idea that a loudspeaker system can reproduce a live event from what you've just said Sounds like an impossibility. I mean, given that it's going through the microphone chain. And-, and yet, you know, from time to time, going back to the 50s with Wharfdale and Quad, where, and more recently where people put speakers on stage 
they recorded the orchestra and then maybe they put a curtain in front and they keep turning the orchestra on and off sort of <laughs> and <laughs> can you did can you hear the difference between live versus recorded? And people, no, they sound just the same. And I'm going, yeah, they're not really astute listeners from that point of view, are they? <laughs> um, <laughs> I've never heard anything at home that could possibly represent what I've heard in the real concert hall. Um, and I'd love to. It's just not something that happens. So It's just wishful thinking, really, isn't it? I think so. I love, yeah. I love the concept. Um, I just, the more and more I analyze it, you, know, you end up with analysis paralysis. You start thinking of all these things that could affect it and go, I can't deal with all of these. How do I, how do I work with all of these? How do I right. know? And, um, you know, in Marvel Comics days, one of my favorite characters was the Watcher, this supreme uh-huh. creature that his whole life, his own, he can observe everything that's going on in the universe for all time. He can't interfere, which must really suck. <laughs> um, but he knows everything. It's just he can do nothing with that knowledge. And I'd love to know everything about how do I capture that, but I can't. Um, right. So then you end up being more pragmatic. If even with a real event that you could have been at, um, you don't know how to fully capture it. And now uh, Keith Johnson reference recordings he did a great little seminar once up in a recording studio up in uh, Oakland and uh, he set up a piano and drum kit and hmm. you could walk around while they were playing and he says kind of listen to where you think you get the right blend between the drum kit and the piano you know you get too close to the drum kit it's too loud you go too close to the piano, it's too loud. Um, the sound changes because you're closer under the lid of the piano and all these things. And so he then set up his choice of microphones and you listen to it uh, once you got into the control room. And then he showed us the microphones. And even though he always records with a cross pair, there's always enhancement microphones. And he ended up saying is, what I try and do is give a presentation over two channels that sounds like you think it would have sounded like if you'd have been there but you weren't <laughs> right so it's it's about it's about manufacturing an illusion the feeling of accuracy right yes it is it's an illusion um i don't think that's big news but it is an illusion everybody has a different idea of what illusion they're going to give you mm. um so another experiment we did um, at a show in Stockholm many years ago when I was with TAD, and this is um, my um, friend in Sweden who uh, runs a store there. He mm. set up a room adjacent to ours, um, which had piano, bass, or ch- piano, cello, and voice, brought in two different recording engineers. Free choice of how they wanted to record this event. The only stipulation, you all use the same microphones. And these were Diedrich de Geer microphones, which are hugely expensive, um, custom-built microphones. So we had seven of them. So one guy was going to record multi-track on digital, and he set up a pair under the piano, a pair on the voice, one on the cello. Uh, the other guy set up a pair, cross-pair, out in the room onto two-track tape, analog tape. 
after the recording's finished, the digital guy runs back to his studio in Stockholm, does all his mixing and mastering and brings it back. Then we could play it in the next room. And I was saying to people, it's not, this is not live versus recorded because we don't win that. It's not even analog versus digital. What it is, is engineer A versus engineer B. How do right. we choose to capture an event? And because we'd got enough of you know, duplicate microphones, it wasn't even sequential playings. It was a simultaneous recording in two different ways of that one event. And if I, we hadn't have told anyone before that, and we just played two recordings, we thought they were entirely different performances in different places, and it, they almost had no similarity. Um, and so what we wanted to say is, how do you judge that event when the recording engineer made different choices? Right, right. Yeah, I find I find this endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Um, can I ask you about measurements and, and yeah. how you use them when you're designing a loudspeaker? What's the last thing you do? Are you measuring or are you listening? Um, actually, the, the very last thing I do is listen, mm. always. Um, and I start off all my development work is from measurement mm. with the drivers. Um, and then I set myself a target function of what I like the system to do. Um, and I'm still, you know, this idea, okay, so let's give up on knowing what it actually sounded like. Is the best loudspeaker the one that's most neutral so that it just is a chameleon? Anything you put in comes out unchanged. So you're listening, mm. even though you don't know what it should sound like, you could say, this is probably what it was supposed to sound like. I just don't know that it is. Right. Um, and so, you know, you'd have to say that just like with electronics, one of the basic things is let's at least have a flat response. Mm. Which response is flat? A speaker is a three-dimensional device. So is it the in-room response, like in the old days, that should be flat? Is it the direct response that should be flat? And if it's the direct response, do I care what the off-axis response does uh, or not? Uh, well, if I do, what's the balance between the direct sound and the on-axis, uh, the off-axis responses? Um, what's the relative importance of them? And, you know, Floyd Tool's done a lot of work with regard to that as to determine yes you still want basically a flat on axis response and you want a smooth off axis response and those kind of things so i still that's always been my aim the difficulty is can you achieve that and mm. if you can't then what do you do how do you step away from perfection and blend your compromises. So start with measurements. Uh, try and get um, a driver that has the smoothest performance in band, um, very fast decay, no obvious resonances. Then you look at how it's starting to behave 
uh, out of band, you know, beyond the crossover point, because no crossover mm. crosses over infinitely fast. So you still need to take care of what it's doing out of band and maybe even equalize it out of band to reduce some of the problems it'll have. Um, so you, you do that design work, woofer, mid-range tweeter, um, then you start to work on the crossover. And at this point, it's all, I've never listened to anything. Now, of course, I've got lots of experience of drivers I've developed through the years. So I, I kind of know where I'm going with drivers and what's likely to be a good driver. Um, but you still got design choice every single time you're developing a driver. Things change, the mechanoacoustic devices, you know, how things are glued together, the shape of the surround, the profile of the cone, all, never mind the material, they will all affect the response, the performance. So um, you get all that sorted out, blend them together, build a prototype, crossover, then listen. Mm-hmm. And so now we're back to this dilemma we've just been discussing. What am I listening for? If I believe it's got a fairly flat response, um, and like I said, it's not going to be a flat response. Almost no speaker is truly a flat response. And mm-hmm. certainly not flat both on and off axis. There's perturbations in that. Which perturbations do you care about more? Some things you care about more than others. Which? Does mm. it vary by the price point you're aiming at? What can you give up in order to achieve an overall um, best result? But how do you choose that best result? That's got to be preference. Is there any published work that says, if you can't achieve flat response, uh, it's better to have a dB hump at the 300 hertz range rather than the 1,000 hertz range rather than the 3,000 hertz range? Where do you go with that? And I've actually, and I need to find this, I have a GEC research um, report given to me by Raymond Cook. He found this in his archives and he says, Andrew, I think you'd enjoy this. I Hmm. think the date was 1934, something like this. (laughs) Okay. And it was a chart on a frequency graph. Each of the different bands, let's say three to 500, 500 to 700, 700 to 1,000, et cetera, and plus and minuses, and it referred them to the sound of different instruments. And if it's up in this 5,000 range, horns will sound more raspy. Um, if it's 1,000 hertz, uh, voices will sound more forward. And all this thing, stuff like that, huh. I'm thinking, my God, with the imperfections of speakers in those days, they could even chart that and give you a guide to understanding... Uh, why something was sounding like it was. So do I want my horns to sound less raspy, but my voices sound more forward? <laughs> What's right, right. So um, once I start listening to it, I have to make choices. But based on which recordings, if I don't know what they should sound like or were intended to sound like, what, how do I make my choices when I listen to something that I'm trying to evaluate? Is this neutral enough? So, um, 
But are you are you still measuring at this point, or are you making the? Let's just suppose I know what I'm listening for, um, mm. and I go, nah, on this particular vocalist doesn't quite sound how I normally expect this to hear, mm. um, or to sound. So I go, is it me? Is it the recording? Is it the response? Is it the frequency response? <laughs> What's going wrong? So I will go back, and first of all, I'll remeasure it just to make sure that, okay, my remeasure matches what I originally intended. Mm. Um, there's also a further complication in that can you accurately measure a final speaker with one measurement? And the answer is not really. Not most people. They don't have the facilities to do that. There's all mm-hmm. sorts of techniques to derive what the actual acoustic response is from individual measurements of all the different drivers. And we know that if I um, do that synthesis, I've measured all the drivers, I design the crossover, I measure the crossover, and let's say it should come out within half a dB of what I theoretically calculated it would do on my computer. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, I see this final composite response. I can't then go back and exactly measure that with a single measurement. But I, c- I know what to expect. So I make that measurement and I go, um, yeah, maybe maybe I was thinking I, would, I was too good. I, I got it this time. That, that, you know, it's, it's measures really nice. And I go back and go, you know what? I was too enthusiastic. It doesn't measure quite that good. I can see mm. regions where maybe I could have done better. I wonder if this is what's responsible for how it sounds. Um, and since I've lost that chart, <laughs> I can't even refer to that 1934 chart. So I, um, I ought to generate my own. So uh, then I will go back to my synthesis programs and I'll go, yeah, it was a bit up in here. Let's see if I can just dial it back down a bit in that region. Then I'll go and do that. Um, measure it again to see did it dial it down and then go back and listen now if i'm good i'll listen to it again and go yeah that sounds better um Mm. well either that or it's expectation bias which is the the biggest problem you know you 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 think you've done better so you determine that that's how you're going to hear it yeah of course it's right because i made a a change to it so um, you, you iterate that way until um, you've got as close to your target curve as you wanted to get. And let's just assume that I know what my target curve should be. Um, but right. you got it close and it's sounding better. If it didn't fix it, then, oh, it must have been something else that was responsible for that. So that is an iterative process between listening and measuring. Mm -hmm. Um, I would never just go back and uh, fiddle while I'm listening. I'd always refer back to a measurement because if I can't refer back to a measurement, um, I'm kind of lost for next time. I don't want everything to surprise me every single time. So... um, but then that gets back to the question, well, what should I listen to? And, um, you know, which recordings? Hmm. So I find, after all these years, I've 
settled on um, I'm going to please me because uh, it, it seems to be working. <laughs> right. And then, well, what pleases me? Well, it's certain recordings that I really enjoy listening to. And, mm. yeah, we often talk about what music should you play at demos, at shows. And it shouldn't just be hi-fi recordings, audiophile recordings. It should be a whole manner of stuff. But you want stuff mm. that you think is well-recorded, or at least in your terms of what you want to hear. To you, it sounds well-recorded. Um, emotionally involving, so that I, because I, I'm going to be listening to it eight, eight or nine hours a day for three or four days. So, yeah. Because yeah. uh, I stay in the room. So I, I like stuff that I find emotionally involving that I hope other people do as well. And everybody who's playing music, you, you refine your demo choice um, so that it pleases the most number of people. Mm. And, but those become locked in my brain from years and years and years of doing this and doing those presentations and it's not always the same recordings at every show or else that would get boring but you find new ones but you also keep learning what those new ones are to you Mm -hmm. what you want from them under Mm. lots of different conditions different playback equipment different speakers different rooms and so when you come to do that judgment during the design process you i think you've got a decent enough memory to feel what pleases you when you listen to that recording again so Um, do you use the same music in your say in your design lab um as you use at shows when you're demoing your speakers yes yeah Ah, i i don't have pieces that I will only use for um, designing. Because again, Mm. I want music that I enjoy listening to. Um, The only time that I stop using a piece of music uh, at demos is either I'm back at the show where everyone's heard those before, or the list has gone up, Thou Shalt Not Play Diana Crawl, Hotel California, (laughs) etc. I'm not going to even say anything about that. I've said enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So what's that new, the new band you were talking about? Oh, God. That German Oh, is it? Oh, Remstein. Remstein. Yeah, Remstein on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, yes. I actually um, listened to that for the first time the other day. I would just put, aggregating a lot of different demo things onto a disc to or a thumb drive to play at the next show and Mm. i don't know who gave me this it might have been one of my colleagues up in canada and i'm looking through and going oh my god i have them (laughs) so i I listened to a track of that oh actually this is quite good i don't know what they're saying and i hope it's not um politically incorrect but uh i thought yeah i can understand why this would be interesting to demo uh Mm. so um basically i take things out of rotation if i've been doing it too long and then every so often you go you you listen to all your music again and go oh i haven't played this for a while oh now i remember why i always liked it oh i I think i'll play this again 
But yeah, I have those selections and um, whether I'm designing or demonstrating, I'm pretty much using the same piece of music. And then I've just adjusted it until I go, yeah, I think that's what I want it to be. Okay, good to go, put it into production. Okay. Is there... Are there things that you can, like physical components that you can change inside a loudspeaker that will not register on measurement with measurements that you take? Ah, that's the hairy one, isn't it? Can we measure everything that we hear? Um, That's why I didn't ask the question that way. I one answer I'd give there is that you really need to know how to measure before you do anything else. Mm. And measuring a speaker is very complicated um, because it interacts with its environment. And you know the Theoretical best way of measuring a speaker is obviously making an anechoic measurement. Now, mm. all that anechoic means is reflection-free. It does mm. not mean an anechoic chamber. An anechoic chamber is called an anechoic chamber because it's supposed to be reflection-free. Mm-hmm. Kind of is, but it isn't really. And okay. You know, you want a really, really, really big anechoic chamber if you want truly reflection-free with really long wedges and lots of open airspace. Mm. And those cost lots of millions of dollars. Uh, And pretty much no one who's designing speakers is using a chamber that big. So Mm. there are smaller chambers. And the kind of reasonably reflection-free in the mids and highs, they still have fuzz in the measurement, but um, you can get the general idea of what the speaker's doing. Low frequencies, forget it. You have to use different mm-hmm. techniques. Or you right. put it up on a pole uh, up in the air and um, live in Southern California, so you've always got good measurements, so you can make the measurement when you want it, <laughs> rather than when the uh, <laughs> when the weather allows. And so um, then In one way, that's the most reflection-free, as long as you get it high enough off the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're using all these techniques to try and determine what it's doing um, in the absence of reflections. Then that's why you then measure it at all other angles um, to see what it's doing off-axis, so you can kind of guess how it's going to interact with the room. But even the idea of making an accurate measurement is very difficult because obviously you need a calibrated microphone and the equipment needs to be calibrated, but who's Mm. calibrated it? Certainly not you. Um, Have you got accurate up-to-date calibration charts for everything? Are you using those calibration charts? Um, Measuring low frequencies. There's so much interaction with the measuring equipment that if you take a new piece of equipment and a new speaker and you measure it, how do you know whether you got an accurate measurement? The, hmm. You get wiggles in the response. Was it the device under the test, or is it influenced with the test equipment? 
you don't know. Mm. So how do you learn how to make accurate measurements in the first place if you don't have a calibrated source to measure with your test equipment and learn how things change as you change measuring distance and elevation of the speaker and drive level and all these things. And that's the advantage I had, I feel, when I was working at KEF. I was in research before I ever moved into product design. And my first Mm. few years, one of my major topics was improving the accuracy of measurements. I loved that kind of thing. A really nerdy thing. But I love thinking about how to make better speaker measurements or Mm. um, better speaker measurements in uh, non-ideal environments, because that's what most of us faced with i was looking at tad because i had a fantastic chamber in southern california an chamber and i had two other fantastic chambers over in tokyo so uh i had access to good facilities um now i don't so much um mm. but because of my experience of uh developing better measurement techniques i know what to expect and that's why i said i can't make a single measurement that represents what the speaker actually does in the finality because I've had to synthesize all the different parts in the process of getting a representation of what it's going to do. And Mm. once everything's put together, you can't access those individual parts to correct them. Even measuring in an accurate chamber, if you've a vented speaker, there's always a correction curve you have to apply and um, the correction curve depends on location of the speaker in the chamber. So if the mm. vent's at the back and the driver's at the front, there's possibly two different correction curves you need. But since those variables are not separable, then, you know, because you can't block the vent and measure the driver because the driver behaves differently once you block the vent. Right, right, yes. So you got a simultaneous event of two things that need a different correction curve. So you're kind of stuffed. Um, so you develop techniques to get around that and hmm. so on and so forth. I can even, if I'm talking about the low frequency response of a driver in a box, if I measure the impedance curve, I can tell you within half a dB up to two or three hundred hertz, maybe four or five, um, my dog's probably a toy. <laughs> um, I can tell you within a half a dB what the acoustic response will be mm. and, uh, without even measuring the acoustic response. We look to see, can I now have an accurate measurement? And then what mm. can I go looking for in the measurements? And what's interesting, other than non-linearities, um, you know, distortion, harmonic distortion, intermodulation distortion. Mm-hmm. All the, let's say, linear distortions, uh, frequency response and decay, impulse response, they're all the same. Whether you measure a true impulse or you measure with a, in the frequency domain and calculate the decay characteristics or mm-hmm. then go back and calculate the um, time domain response, there's no difference. One is a transform of the other. They, they basically are the same thing. So you can't say, um, I'm only interested in the time domain response, because it is the frequency response. So um, if you any measurement you make to improve the frequency response, 
will improve the time response. Right. So you then you look at some of the wiggles in the frequency response and you think, is that wiggle, is it a decayed resonance peeking through or is it a diffraction effect? So then you can start measuring over a number of angles and averaging them out and see if it changes with angle. If it doesn't change with angle, then it might be a decayed resonance. So then you do your gating so that you can eliminate the direct, the, the early part of the uh, response and look at how it's changing with time. Mm-hmm. And that will give you some idea of the colorations in the driver because colorations basically are changes in frequency response and they might occur in the direct sound or the, de- the delayed sound from the driver and mm-hmm. how fast they decay is um, affects what your impression of the driver is and you have more or less sensitivity to certain um, types of decay whether it's a broadband decay or very narrow band resonance, delayed resonance. Mm. Sometimes you'll hear them, sometimes you won't. So, but first of all, you've got to be able to see them. And once you see them, you get an idea of what's going on. So there's, there's an awful lot in the measured response that really does tell you how it's performing. Mm-hmm. If you know enough to take apart that measured response and see what's going on. But if you just make a simple measurement, um, you could easily say, well, they don't represent because I can hear all these things and it doesn't look like that. In mm. the it doesn't look that bad in the measurement. And it always does look that bad in the measurement. It's always <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> For someone who came from a measurement background, especially doing affordable speakers, it's always disappointing. You just wish you could have a, a better measurement um, result. So, uh, and that's why when people, I, I don't publish measurement curves. Mm. Not because I'm hiding something. It's just that I know it's so difficult to properly relate what's going on in just one graph on a page uh, to what is actually happening. That Well, what are you going to learn from it? You know, it's like I have to publish specs on low frequency response. And... If I, I so very often design the bookshelf, so the, well, the tower speaker, so it's an identical copy of the bookshelf. It just mm. goes louder and, uh, you know, more dynamics in it. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily go really much lower because I've already made my compromise in my bookshelf of what characteristics I wanted to have. And one mm. of those is extended bass. Now, of course, it can't go very loud at the very lowest frequencies, although it tends to do surprisingly well. But the tower will. Mm. so And it'll load into the room differently and couple into the room better. Um, But I always have to try and make sure it goes at least one hertz lower. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Is that that because of consumer perception yes 
you'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't, by how we'll have people, and this is not just for us, people will call in and say, on your specs, uh, it says the bookshelf is 45 hertz and the tower is 44, maybe even 46. Who knows? Yeah. And they're worried about the one hertz difference. And shouldn't it be more than that? It's a tower. And then, you know, it, guys, it's one hertz. It's, you know, and mm. well, you say yours only goes down to 45, but manufacturer so-and-so goes down to 30. I'm going, and I want to say, actually, it doesn't. <laughs> not, if you, not if you measure anechoically. It's... Um, right. It's... So is, it, so is it the case that if you publish just say one or two measurements then it's a two it's an overly simplistic view of what you've done but if you publish a whole slew of measurements with full interpretations then you just risk bamboozling your audience and they turn off completely yes that's that is an issue um and i got to, you know you got to walk the fine line because like i say i don't want to appear unhelpful i don't want to appear elitist that mm. um, you couldn't possibly interpret that simple measurement um i mean if i if i on the few occasions where i'll bring in competitive speakers to measure I, mm. I don't do a full scale analysis of them i want to get mm. a quick idea so i'll measure just one single measurement mm. it gives me some idea because my experience um but I know that that isn't truly the only thing that's going on in that speaker, but I just wanted something simple because uh, I, I don't really analyze competitors' product to death and pull them apart and see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but how am I going to explain if someone tackles me with the question, well, this is your frequency response, it's down in this region and blah, blah, blah. That's an endless conversation. And so I've got to try and work out each time, gauge if I, you know, not just say you wouldn't understand. <laughs> That's not really going to gain me any friends. So um, I'll go into some kind of discussion, but mm. that is basically why I don't publish it. And when I see magazines publishing things responses, I am glad that they do. Um, although I like reading all the subjective reviews, I, you know, I read lots of magazines, I enjoy them. Mm. I still secretly wish that all of them were making some kind of measurement. And mm. there's, there's one, I think it's an Italian magazine. They measured one of my debut speakers and it got a good review. Mm. But what more interested me the suite of measurements these guys make they actually measure more than i do when i'm designing it they know more <laughs> about what my speaker does than i do myself <laughs> in that sense in a particular way um you know i know because of experience of how i chose to design it that i know it's mm. going to do this but they'd actually published all the measurements and i go yeah that, that's that's what i like to see um, but do you, do you ever see inconsistency in results between oh, yeah. different different magazines? So 
if you know if magazine if this uh, magazine A publishes this frequency response graph and magazine B another one and C another one, I mean they surely they must come up with slightly different uh, frequency response plots. Yeah, especially since they've done it in different environments. Um, so so how do you know which one is the accurate one? Well, exactly. The, 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 right. It's like having three watches that are all a minute out from each other. <laughs> yeah. Which one is the which one is the real time? You right. can't possibly know. Yeah. And and so if you're let's say you're just a reader of magazine B, well, yes, it's actually better to have just one watch, isn't it? Because then you're not confused by watch A and C or magazine A and C, but you're reading magazine B, you still don't know whether that measurement is accurate or not, right? Right. 